HTP, which is a whole bit music to play group here on campus, that during the 12 hours Scottish play on February 12th, February 2nd, February 2nd. Um, James Joyce's birthday. They're doing a what? A 12? A 12 hour, like, condensed version of the Scottish play of Macbeth. And they just want to... Wait, wait. <laughs> they, so, it, it, yeah, basically, like, they're going to, like, announce, like... I mean, yeah, they're going to, like, everybody, like, everybody's going to, like, meet up for it, and then they're going to, like, announce the cast list, and then 12 hours after that Oh, moment, okay, so, it. oh, so, so, so yeah, yeah, so it's, it's like a flash play. I thought it was, I thought you meant 12-hour oh, no, 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 long play. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, no. Please, um, if you're interested, talk to me about the email addresses and, every, um, and everything about everyone you should contact. It's open cost, so if you express interest, you're basically in. That's great. And, yeah. And if you can't go to audition times, you can just send a video of yourself just, like, doing, like, the short yeah, one. Like reading, whatever. Yeah. yeah. If it were fun. done when it is done, then tw- that one. Yeah. 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 You should yeah. Yeah. that one, yeah. including yeah. that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, me and Grace are both going to be in it, and it's going to be fun. Yay. So what are you going to be? Who are you going to be? You don't know yet. You'll decide. That's 12 hours. Okay. So, yeah. So this is this is a already written play version, because you know about the 24-hour movies, right? Where people get together and make a movie in 24 hours from from uh, writing the script to um, finishing it. Uh, so yeah, no, that's great. Has anyone seen Sleep No More? Some version of it. Oh, I've been to it. You've been to it, yeah. yeah. And you have too. I haven't been to it, but there's like something like happening on campus. It's like a very shit, or like what somebody's coming from that production. Oh, are they the really? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah, they did it in Boston probably, I don't know what, eight or ten years ago. Um, it was in a closed high school in Brookline. And so you just walk through this high school and there was a bar and people screaming and, you know, it was like Brandeis. And then, <laughs> um, and I think they, it may have just closed in New York or I might have, might have gotten a misleading email um, which was trying to get people to go see it in 2019 by the email said only three more performances, but it might have only been three more performances in 2019. But if it's in, if it's still in New York, it's at the McKittrick Hotel, and um, they do. Is that where you saw it? Yeah, I went last summer. Did you like it? It was amazing. Yeah, I think about it all the time. Do you really? Yeah, for whatever reason. No, that's it's good. Still, just like, is in my consciousness. Yeah. So, why didn't you describe it to people? Okay, so um, Sleep No More is an adaptation of Macbeth um, that takes place in this, like, really nondescript building in New York, in Manhattan, um, called the McKittrick Hotel. And so, essentially, like, what it is, is um, you yourself kind of just, like, watch the performance as it happens, so there's no audience versus stage. Um, So you go into, like, you are on the set, and the set consists of multiple floors of this building and they each have kind of a different scene going on Um, and so the actors move around the floors and you follow them to kind of see like how the plot unfolds Um, and everybody wears, everyone who's technically like an audience member wears a mask uh, so you are like completely anonymous and it's completely silent so um, it's pretty creepy to be honest but it's really cool and um, it takes, you like, you have no concept of time really at all, so you, like, don't really know how long you've been in there, but um, you can, like, really interact with the set and the actors, and they really encourage you, um, you know, to make bold decisions. Um, and it's a really interesting adaptation of Macbeth.
Um, but it's very much like the kind of thing where you probably like would want to read about it prior because it's not really something that you could just like. It's it's not so close to Macbeth that it makes sense immediately, but it's close enough that you can kind of get the gist of it. But it's an, it was an amazing experience. Very cool. Yeah, it would it would be a little bit like being um, one of the characters, you know, an anonymous and unimportant character in Macbeth. Um, who's just wandering around, and because a thing I, I talked about this in in uh, uh, the Shakespeare lecture, but this is always worth knowing. Um, Aristotle's rules for tragedy that people took seriously, and in fact too seriously. And one thing that Restoration drama does when it does tragedies, it follows Aristotle's rules. Aristotle's rules for tragedy are um, the three unities. And the three unities, as understood in by um, Renaissance uh, European theaters, were unity of place, unity of time, and unity of action. And unity of place meant that everything happens in a single place, that what happens when you see Greek drama is that you might be on a public square or in a marketplace as a real person, and then stuff might start happening, and the actual Greek tragedy would all be occurring visibly in a single place, so that you would happen to be at a place where tragic events were either happening or sometimes being talked about. That is, for example, that um, in Oedipus, Yocasta uh, and Yocasta uh, hangs herself off stage, and that's because she goes back into the palace. But Oedipus comes out at the beginning of the of the play and uh, makes an announcement, and then messengers come up and talk to him, and this is all occurring in public. So unity of places that the tragic events all occur at a single place, and if you're there, if you happen to be there, you would see those tragic events. So an audience member is like someone who happens to be in a public space where tragic events are occurring. Unity of time meant for Aristotle, but was misunderstood by um, Renaissance playwrights. Unity of time meant that it all happened in real time, so that you were, you were seeing something happening in a single place and unfolding in real time. So the tragic events would take an hour or two, and that's it. Oedipus would make an announcement, and then Tiresias would say, dude, it's you. Um, that's my translation. And then Oedipus would get upset, and um, the results would be tragic. So, but it was understood later on and wrongly that unity of time meant that things should happen in a compressed time period, that is, in a single 24-hour period. That's not what Aristotle meant, but there are lots of later plays that do take place over the course of 24 hours. Then unity of plot is a kind of obvious one, which is that it shouldn't just be one damn thing after another. Um, and it shouldn't be lots of different things occurring that happen to be occurring simultaneously. It shouldn't be anarchic, but everything should contribute to the plot. And Shakespeare was kind of dissed by the French especially, uh, Voltaire for example, for violating the unities. That is, he doesn't have unity of time. Macbeth, those of you who read the history, how long was Macbeth 
King. How long? No, more. No, 10 years is a good king. So he's a good king for 10 years, but Hollins had said he's just trying to fool people by being a good king. Um, well, okay, that works. And then he was king after that for another seven years. So he's actually king for 17 years. And remember, the play begins before he becomes king and ends with his death and uh, with Malcolm uh, announcing that he himself is going to be made king. So Shakespeare knew that was 17 years. He didn't care. Yeah. So by unity of time, that means, like, time within the same... Like, what is the constraint on that? Like, all in the same day, essentially? So, like? for Aristotle, it was all in real time. So, if a tragedy okay. took two hours to unfold... It should take two it hours would take two, Yeah, it would take two hours on stage. So that okay. between the beginning of a tragedy and the end, two hours would pass in a two-hour tragedy. Uh, probably the Greek tragedies were slightly shorter although it's not known for sure. What is known is that Shakespeare's plays were spoken very, very quickly. The Greek plays, probably not. But if you perform Shakespeare's plays at the, with people speaking as fast as they did in Shakespeare's day, they'd be a lot shorter than anything you see now. The reason being it was a much more oral culture, so if you think about the difference between your capacity to watch really fast cutting on MTV or in music videos or something versus your parents' capacity, you're seeing a lot more because you, are, uh, you belong to a much more visual culture and rapid-fire culture than the culture your parents grew up in. So Shakespeare's culture was oral. Lots of his audience couldn't read. And what they could do was hear very, very quickly. So if you guys, if any of you have the experience of being able to follow like a hip-hop song on one listen and just follow what's going on, that would, Shakespeare's audience would have been able to do that. They were just really, really fast at processing spoken words. And so for that reason, the plays actually occurred a lot faster than they do now. The Romeo and Juliet, for example, is two hours long. There's some evidence for how long the plays were. They had to be performed in daylight, so they, that, that was another constraint. They didn't have artificial lights. They did for indoors, small plays indoors, but at the Globe, it all had to be performed in daylight, so late morning or early afternoon is when a play would start. But Shakespeare didn't care about real time. That is, things can happen in a Shakespeare play over the course of 17 years. In Antony and Cleopatra, 10 years pass between two scenes. Shakespeare doesn't tell you 10 years are passing because he does have unity of plot, except that he always has more than one plot. But unity, of, or almost always, has more than one plot. Unity of plot means that everything matters, that if you cut anything out, the plot would make no sense. And it means that the, plot, that the plot falls like dominoes. That is, each thing that happens inevitably causes the next thing to happen. And the inevitability of things happening is what gives a sense, when the play is over, it gives a sense of inevitability to what you've just been watching. So Sleep No More is Shakespearean in the sense that stuff is happening all over the place. It isn't unity of place. There are many floors, many rooms. You wander into events that are occurring 
in the play, and then people go running away from you. Uh, you may see the witches, and then you may say, oh, cool, the witches, now Macbeth is going to come meet them, and so I'll just stick with the witches, except the witches start shrieking and running away, and then there's blackness because they cause it to be black everywhere, and then you look around and just more people in masks but no witches. And so you can go searching out for things to happen. You may come upon Lady Macbeth sleepwalking. You may come upon Macduff, uh, Macduff's children, Lady Macduff and Macduff's children, but you are getting a very fragmentary experience which is both anxiety-provoking and invigorating, but gives you something like the experience that we watching the play in a theater on a stage are imagining characters within the play are having, not the experience that we're having, but the experience that we're imagining characters in the play are having. So Sleep No More is a kind of um, really neat, it's, it's one of those places where experimental theater is, you know, generally bad, but every year's experimental theater, there's always, there are always a few good ideas that then become something you can do stuff with later, and I would say Sleep No More works that way. That is, it's the kind of thing that belongs to experimental theater of the 80s, maybe, that took, that worked, that they figured out how to make it work really well and make it something that is powerful and um, uh, compelling. So that, that, that's definitely worth, worth seeing. Okay, I sent you some stuff today that, yeah, tell me. I feel like that is an activity that is excellent to do if you have like a party of people with you because you could all be in different places and then after it's done you like piece together what happened where you're like where some event might happen or some character might enter and you have no idea what they were doing but if your friend was in the other room you can later on you can be like all right so what led to that yeah that's I feel like it. that would be awesome yeah that's absolutely true their idea i think is a little different which is that you'll have to come back 18 times <laughs> yeah but i i know i understood that yeah but okay. if you have 18 people then yes it, then you, you don't yeah, and the, it's a win-win for them either way. Either 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 the entire class goes, uh, or you go for the entire class. Or, yeah, or you yeah. guys just pay for my ticket so that I can go eighteen you go, times. You go every time representing one of us here. Yeah, that's what I would do. Yeah, and then and then I would make my for report every, for every student. You wear pajama for every, pants for and like a wig, and I'm Tommy Holloman. For, <laughs> for every student that's here, you go in that amount of time. Okay. Yeah. So so um, Venmo will work for me, <laughs> and um, just I'll start this weekend uh, with some type of. No. Okay. So there are a couple of things. I, I sent you a whole bunch of links today, which are basically, I'm going to try and give you a running set of emails with links in them so that you'll have them all at one place. I don't really like to upload to Latte, which is what you're supposed to do, because they just keep changing Latte and you lose stuff that you've uploaded and um, there are problems. Is that okay, Prue? Yeah. No, I just... Latte. <laughs> you don't have a latte love for latte? Lotta? No. See, that was a Shakespearean pun. Lotta? Latte? No. And what lovely weather we're having. Okay. So, um, I, I sent you this, which I didn't actually assign um, as reading, but it's what I wanted to talk about last week, which is some stuff that Coleridge says about Shakespeare's punning. So, 
which is what we started about started um, talking about. So one so Coleridge is talking about Richard II, and we talked about this a little bit also. That Gaunt, when he's dying, talks about how he's gaunt as the grave. So Richard asks, and this is Coleridge's lecture on Richard II, can sick men play so nicely with their names? That is, here he is dying, and yet he's cracking these jokes. And Coleridge's response is, yes, on a deathbed, there is a feeling which may make all things appear but as puns and equivocations. So that seems like a really powerful thing to say. Coleridge often thought he was dying because of his experience of addiction. And uh, he, would, he would take laudanum, which is opium dissolved in alcohol, and feel better and then feel terrible and think he was dying. And because he was dying, he would have to take laudanum. So he had this experience for a long time. He wrote a long part. How many? We talked a little bit about Coleridge, but in his kind of autobiography called Biographia Literaria, he talks about his addiction to laudanum and how he got over it and how important that was. He actually had to go to Malta. He left his family and went to Malta to try to uh, shake it there. And um, so in Biographia Literaria, he talks about how he finally shook his addiction to laudanum and was no longer an addict. And he was so late with the writing that he owed, and he was finding the writing so hard that the only way that he could write the chapter about how he was no longer addicted to laudanum was by taking a lot of laudanum. (laughs) And uh, in fact, he was addicted pretty much to the end of his life. Um, So he he knew the experience. De Quincey, who you're reading for Friday, in the Confessions of an English Opium Eater, and this is not really a class on opium, but um, in his Confessions of an English Opium Eater, there's a section called The Pleasures of Opium, which makes it sound pretty good, and then followed by a section called The Pains of Opium, and the pains make the pleasure seem, well, maybe not worth it. So So you might say that you had a less than laudable laudanum. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. Lovely day, yes. Um, <laughs> oh, it's uh, the sun is shining. It's 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 a balmy twenty-five degrees. Yes, the sky is blue. Yeah. Did a lot? Did laudanum addiction cause Coleridge's death? Or? No. Oh, okay. No, but it made a lot of his life seem like death. Uh, what he calls death in life. So, it, 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 he found it extremely unpleasant, as did De Quincey. So anyhow, so he says, with some knowledge, yes, on a deathbed there is a feeling which may make all things appear but as puns and equivocations. So on your deathbed you may feel that everything in the world is a a joke, is a grim joke. And a passion there is that carries off its own excess by plays on words as naturally and therefore as appropriately to drama as by gesticulations, looks, or tones. So that when you are feeling passion, you may start waving your arms around and, and using strange shrieking and using strange tones. And Coleridge is saying, why wouldn't that also come out not only as bizarreness of, of gesture and bizarreness of tone of voice, but and bizarreness of you know just looking crazy? Why shouldn't it also come out? in bizarreness of language. So this is, this is Coleridge going against Johnson's complaint 
about Shakespeare punning too much. This belongs to human nature as such, independently of associations and habits from any particular rank of life or mode of employment. In other words, there's nothing low about puns, which is a thing that people had said and, and, and still do say, that the pun is the lowest form of humor. And in this consists Shakespeare's vulgarisms, as, as in Macbeth, he's going to give you an example, but by the word vulgarism, he doesn't mean, oh, how vulgar, which is what some people mean by it, but the vulgar means the people. The language of the people is the vulgar language. Dante has a famous essay called um, De Vulgari Eloquentio, that is the eloquence of the common language, which is what he wrote the Divine Comedy in. He wrote it in Italian, the first great work insistently written not in Latin, not in the classical language of great works, but in a modern language. It was Dante who did that. And in fact, the English translations of it are, are shockingly easy to read as well. They're one of the more uh, yeah. even, like easy to grasp poems. You can actually sort of get, because like a lot of the time when you read epic poems, you might have to read the section and then look up online what people have extrapolated from it to actually get the plot. But with Dante, you could pretty much read it and, and give a summary of the plot when he gives it. He pretty much lays it out pretty fair. Yeah, he does. And he's doing it for anyone who can um, read or listen to their native language as opposed to Latin. So when Coleridge says, and in this consists Shakespeare's vulgarisms, he means it's a joke, it's a pun that anyone can understand. As in Macbeth's, the devil damn thee black, thou cream-faced loon, etc. Uh, so the vulgarism there would be something like Macbeth. This isn't a pun, but it's Macbeth being passionate. Do people remember who he says that to? The devil damn thee back, black, thou cream... We, we haven't come to that yet. It's in Act 5. No. So a servant comes in and basically is completely pale because uh, Burnham Wood is coming to Dunsinane and he's got to say this to Macbeth and he can't. Um, he's too pale to speak and Macbeth gets really angry and he calls him a cream-faced loon. So next time someone cuts you off on 90, just try yelling, you cream-faced loon, um, and see if it makes you feel better. But it's, um, it might, but not for the same reasons. But the point is that Macbeth is now, Coleridge is noticing that Macbeth is not using high poetic language. He's just really upset. And he, what he's doing is just insulting the person who is failing to tell him what he needs to know at this point. This is, and then he says, to equivocate on Dante's words... So he, he colors himself using that word equivocate. In truth, the nobile vulgare eloquenza, the noble vulgar eloquence. Indeed, it is profoundly true that there is a natural and almost irresistible tendency in the mind when immersed in one strong feeling to connect that feeling with every sight and object around it, especially if there be opposition and the words addressed to it are in any way repugnant to the feeling itself. So you will connect 
you're feeling with every sight and object around it. You can't help yourself. And if there is any kind of opposition to you, you will use words, Coleridge says, that are somehow inappropriate to the feeling. Coleridge actually says this in his amazing poem, Christabel, where he talks about how Christabel's father yells at her out of excess of love. That is, that excess of love can be so strong that it appears as anger. And Coleridge is really interested in the psychology of that. The everyday version of this is, let's say, someone is breaking up with you and you can't stand it, and you say to them, I hate you. And what you mean by I hate you is, I love you too much for you to be doing this to me. And so you're using the exact wrong set of words for what you're feeling, and yet it's appropriate to what you're feeling, which is that great pain is being caused to you. That's what Coleridge is describing here. As here, in the instance of Richard's unkind language, where he says, misery makes sport to mock itself. That is, misery has a good time mocking itself, which is very unkind to the miserable person, to gaunt. No doubt, something of Shakespeare's punning must be attributed to his age, in which direct and formal combats of wit were a favored pastime of the courtly and accomplished. It was an age more favorable, upon the whole, to vigor of intellect than the present, in which a dread of being thought pedantic dispirits and flattens the energies of original minds. So nothing changes. Everyone thinks that we live in an intellectual wasteland compared to the past. But independently of this, I have no hesitation in saying that a pun if it be congruous with the feeling of the scene, is not only allowable in the dramatic dialogue, but oftentimes one of, the most, one of the most effectual intensives of passion. So that seems right, that in drama, going crazy with punning when things are really, really bad intensifies the sense. This is what I was describing as extravagance in the first class, going beyond all limits of decorum, of decorum, so that you start punning madly when you are in a mad situation. Nicole. With Ophelia, from the beginning example of that. Yeah, good. Like, a lot of things she says has, like, triple meanings, and, like, how is she thinking up each of these puns when she's in such a devastated state is the first thing that would come to mind. Yeah, exactly. So what she's not doing is she's not giving um, a, a short, dignified, or a, or a, or a well-controlled, dignified speech as to her own unhappiness over her, her father's death. She's just going mad with punning and mad with uh, triple references and triple entendres. So that's a really good example of that. Then he says, this is in his lecture on Hamlet, Hamlet opens his mouth with a playing on words. So, so anyone remember Hamlet's first line in Hamlet? What is it? No, that's that's um, his second line. It's his. What is it? Is it the one where like 
he's telling Gertrude about like his morning clothes. Yeah, that's a little bit after that. Oh. So what happens is Claudius turns to him. He's just been talking to Laertes. Uh, a little more than kin and less than kind. Yeah. So Claudius says to him, and now our cousin Hamlet and our son, and Hamlet's response is, a little more than kin. That is, I'm not just your cousin. Um, don't try and distance, distance me by calling me one of your many cousins. A little more than kin and less than Kind. I'm not your son because I'm not like you at all. So I don't belong. That's what the word kind could mean, is offspring. So don't, don't call me your son as though I were like you, as though you were my father when you're not. But don't try to distance me by calling me just a cousin either. But the little pun there is on kin and kind. So it's the K-I-N pun on kin and kind, and it's also I don't feel kindly disposed towards you. So Coleridge says, Hamlet opens his mouth with a playing on words, the complete absence of which throughout characterizes Macbeth. So no puns in Macbeth, says Coleridge, at least no playing on words in Macbeth. What the equivocation of the fiend is that lies like truth that's what it means to say no man of woman born shall harm Macbeth. It's not clear that that's not a playing on words. Coleridge, this playing on words may be attributed to many causes or motives as either to an exuberant activity of mind, as in the higher comedy of Shakespeare generally, or to an imitation of it as a mere fashion, as if it were said, is not this better than groaning? So where do plays on words come from? An exuberant activity of mind, as in the higher comedy of Shakespeare generally. So in the comedies, you get that kind of exuberant punning all the time. Uh, Love's labor's lost most. Or an imitation of that exuberance as a mere fashion, as if it were said, is not this better than groaning. That would be someone like Tybalt saying, um, "'Tis not so... Uh, deep as a well or wide as a church door, but twill serve, twill serve. That's, is not this better than groaning when he's mortally wounded? Or, third possibility, to a contemptuous exaltation in minds vulgarized and overset by their success, as in the poetic instance of Milton's devils in the battle. So when Milton's fallen angels or rebel angels think that they are going to be defeating the loyal angels, they start self-congratulatory punning. So this is a contemptuous exaltation in minds vulgarized and overset by their success. Again, vulgarized means speaking the language of the common. So here what he's saying is, look, Shakespeare puns in his comedies, he puns in his tragedies, and even Milton puns. In, in Paradise Lost, which no one has complained is too funny, or, and no one has complained in Paradise Lost that the language is too vulgar. Or, another possibility, it is the language of resentment, as is familiar to everyone who has witnessed the quarrels of the lower orders, where there's invariably a profusion of punning invective, 
whence perhaps nicknames have in a considerable degree sprung up. So here Coleridge is basically saying the same thing that causes Hamlet to pun causes people to come up with insulting nicknames for each other. Um, or it is the language of suppressed passion and especially of a hardly smothered personal dislike. So you may use a pun because you don't want to say anything stronger than that. The first and last of these combine in Hamlet's case, that is a little more than kin and less than kind, is barely, hardly smothered personal dislike. The first and last of these combine in Hamlet's case, and I have little doubt that Farmer is right, that is another critic of Shakespeare, in supposing the equivocation carried on in the expression, and this is what someone just quoted, too much in the sun, that is, um, Hamlet is asked why he, he um, it looks so nightly, and he says, no, I am too much in the sun, where the pun is not, S, not only S-U-N, but S-O-N. I am too much the son of the dead father, and also you are too much claiming me to be a son. So the things to notice here is that Coleridge has a really interesting dense defense of punning in Shakespeare, but at the same time as he's claiming that there are no puns in Macbeth. And the question, are there puns in Macbeth or not? Coleridge also was absolutely certain, you'll read the, you'll read, you'll, you'll read Act 2 by Friday and you'll read the De Quincey essay on the knocking of the gate in Macbeth. Coleridge was certain that that was not written by Shakespeare, and De Quincey is certain, and certainly right, that it is written by Shakespeare. But Coleridge thought it was just the actors uh, with too much time on their hands uh, coming up with this. Yeah? Could we say in this case it's sort of like in the beginning of uh, King Lear where Gloucester and Kent are talking and he refuses to acknowledge Edmund. Nice. And then when asked, is this not your son, he says something along the lines of, I cannot claim the right of birthing this child or something along those lines. Not quite, but, but um, yeah, he said, um, his um, breeding, sir, hath been at my charge, and I have so often been forced to acknowledge him that now I am brazed to it. So his breeding hath been at my charge is actually a conceptual pun. It means that I have paid for his education, but also I have been charged with being his father. And so charge there means both uh, charged as in a trial. You are charged with violating the Constitution or whatever. I don't know where I got that. And, um, but it also means uh, charge it to my bursar's account. And uh, so, so that is Gloucester kind of acknowledging both, saying, yeah, I paid for him to be brought up because people accuse me of being his father, and now I have so often blushed at that accusation that I'm used to it and um, acknowledge that I am his father. There was good sport at his making, and so on. So yeah, that's a, that is a very similar moment. And often that what Coleridge might be getting us to see is how Shakespeare gets every scene in every play is a scene of conflict. That is what drama is. It's drama. And 
what that means is to put it <coughs> the way the great screenwriting teacher Dan Decker puts it is that you should see every scene this is what you if you write scenes this is how you should write them as at least with more than one person this works with one person also but it's a little bit different if you're soliloquizing but see every scene with more than one person as two people each of which wants something from the other at least two people each of which wants something from the other person in the scene and each of which is trying not to give away the thing that he or she, that the other person wants from him or her. And that means that scenes will be conflict, people trying to get something from the other that the other doesn't want to give, and that conflict can be anything. You know, it can be, can I get the digits? Or it can be, I want you to die now. That, um, and the other person doesn't want to give what the first person wants, but the other person wants something from the first person. So all scenes are scenes of conflict. What Coleridge might be suggesting is that you can get that conflict going instantaneously if you have a kind of pun or conceptual pun. That is, a pun is two meanings. So it's giving, but also withholding. It's saying something, but also saying something else or refusing to say the first thing out and out. So a little more than kin and less than kind is what does Claudius want from Hamlet? He wants him to say, yes, you're my cousin, and I'm glad that you are taking such an interest in me and taking care of me by calling me son. That's what Claudius wants Hamlet to say, and Hamlet is refusing. And what he wants Claudius to say instead is something like, I cheated you out of the kingship. And obviously, neither is going to give the other what he wants in that scene, but the conflict is immediately, instantaneously, in Hamlet's first line, the conflict between Claudius and Hamlet is set up. So that's a really good version of it. Someone's hand was up. Yeah. Um, Grace. Well, with like a, a section that like is disputedly written by Shakespeare, isn't there a scene in... One of the scenes in Macbeth is disputed as far as like uh, the one with like the witches and like where they're talking to the goddess and mm -hmm. she's like magic and isn't that also disputed or? Um, yeah, so it's oh you're so you're wondering about the disputed scenes. Yeah, so yeah. so it is thought by some people, maybe rightly, maybe not, that some of the witches' songs were. Um, written by uh, a younger um, friend of Shakespeare's, who wrote his own, um, who wrote his own plays too, named Middleton. And uh, the person who most claims this is a guy named Gary Taylor, who used to teach at Brandeis, and he is his version of Shakespeare is make Shakespeare as strange and different from um, any Shakespeare that anyone thinks they know as possible and uh, he really seriously overstates his case a lot but he also makes you think and says really really interesting things so he loves Middleton and he I don't think he ever finished but he was supposed to be doing he edited the Oxford Shakespeare which the first edition of the Norton Shakespeare is based on and he also is editing the Oxford Middleton, but it was supposed to be out like 20 years ago. I think it's still not out. 
and I know the people who worked with him are wondering when things when things are going to happen. But at any rate, he anything he can assign to Middleton, he does. And some of the witches songs, especially the Hecate scenes, uh, he he definitely assigns to Middleton. It's not, in fact, his edition. He has Macbeth in his edition of Middleton, and uh, he he calls it Macbeth by William Shakespeare and Thomas Middleton. It's not so. It may be that Middleton did write some of the, not the double double toil and trouble part, probably not, but some of the later scenes uh, where the witches are saying things which are somewhat irrelevant to Macbeth. And there's one place where either Shakespeare is quoting a song that Middleton has written, which Shakespeare does do. He will quote other playwrights intentionally and have you expect you to understand that he's doing that. In As You Like It, there's a moment... When I was in high school, I, we were assigned to read a book in our Shakespeare class. I know it's hard to believe, a book. Uh, no, a book about Shakespeare. And a critical book about Shakespeare. So I read a book called The Murder of the Man Who Was Shakespeare. And that book claimed, interestingly, but falsely, that Shakespeare's work was actually written by Christopher Marlowe. You know that, no, that all these people think Shakespeare didn't write his work. And that's wrong. He did. Just so you know, I can tell you that he did. However, he did collaborate on some plays. There's no question that, that he also collaborated on some plays. And the only example we have of Shakespeare's handwriting, or the only extended example we have of Shakespeare's handwriting, of speeches written by Shakespeare, is actually a great pro-immigrant speech from a play called Thomas More, which Shakespeare wrote, I think it's about 100 lines of. This was when he was just starting off in the theater world. And the manuscript survives, and so you can see a hundred lines of Shakespeare writing in his own handwriting. And that gives you some sense of what Shakespeare's handwriting looked like. And the, this book, The Murder of the Man Who Was Shakespeare, tried to claim that Shakespeare had, was really written by Christopher Marlowe, who was a spy. Do people know this about him? So he was a spy, and he was apparently murdered in 1594 in a barroom brawl where he was stabbed in the eye and died, as one often does when stabbed in the eye. And the one plausible claim is that this was an actual murder, not a, not a brawl where people were arguing about who was supposed to be paying, but that this was a setup and that he was murdered because he was a spy. This guy who wrote The Murder of the Man Who Was Shakespeare takes it farther and says, in fact, he wasn't murdered, that this was an attempt to basically make the French think that he was dead by reporting his murder, but that it was actually a sneaky caper and that he kept, um, that he then lay low and having not much else to do, wrote lots of plays. But because he was supposed to be dead, he got his bud, William Shakespeare, who is the same age as he was, to agree to be the front man for those plays. And this book has an appendix, which is parallel moments in Marlowe and Shakespeare, which would show that Marlowe wrote Shakespeare because he uses the same lines again later on, or something like that, which 
seems like a bizarre way to try to keep in hiding is recycling your own words. But the one example is from As You Like It, where Marlowe has a line who um, where both agree, I'm not going to get this quite right, but um, it's about Hero and Leander, who are lovers, and it's where both agree the hesitation's slight. That's not right, but it's something like that. It's, it's completely not right, but it's something like that. Where both agree uh, the hesitation's slight. Whoever loved that loved not at first sight. So that's the famous line. Whoever loved that loved not at first sight. Then in As You Like It, that line appears verbatim. So for the writer of this thing, it's, look, see, same line, same author. But in As You Like It, the way it goes is, Dead shepherd, now I feel thy saw of might. That is, dead shepherd, now says uh, a woman who's just fallen in love at first sight. She says, dead shepherd, now I feel thy saw of might. Dead shepherd, I see that what you said is absolutely correct. And then she quotes Marlowe, the dead shepherd, whoever loved that loved not at first sight. So that's a place where evidence that Marlowe wrote Shakespeare is actually evidence that Marlowe is dead and that Shakespeare is um, doing a kind of, just, just making a kind of lovely allusion to the dead poet who is called the dead shepherd in this pastoral play. So that kind of thing where people are desperate to prove that someone else wrote Shakespeare's work goes back to the mid-19th century, and the first person to make that claim is a woman named Delia Bacon, who maybe unsurprisingly thought that Francis Bacon wrote all of Shakespeare's work. They weren't related, but still... Bacon and Bacon, and um, people have been trying to prove that since because they can't stand the idea that someone they know so little about could could have done this, but he did. Just so you know. So how much? So Gary Taylor wants to try to make as little by Shakespeare as possible. It still means it's massively by Shakespeare. Gary Taylor isn't irresponsible in that. In the, in the way that the writer of The Murdered Man of Shakespeare is irresponsible, but it still means it's massively by Shakespeare, but even in Taylor's version, but if he can give it to anyone else, he will. And Middleton is his preferred go-to guy to give stuff by Shakespeare. So is Macbeth properly said by, should it probably be called by Shakespeare and Middleton? No. You can possibly assign some of the witches' songs and some of the witch's speeches to Middleton. In Macbeth, there's a song that has an etc. in it, which means it's a known song, and Shakespeare isn't claiming it for his own. How many people know Kiss Me, Kate? Yay! So what's it based on? Taming of the Shrew. Taming of the Shrew. So in Taming of the Shrew, there's a moment where Petruchio, it, the, the, what it says in, in the play, is Petruchio sings where is the life that late I led, etc. So the etc. there means that the people know the song. It's like saying, and then, I don't, I don't know, um, um, President Trump sings yesterday, etc. 
And the whole point is that he would know, and we would know, and, and everyone would know, and the director would know, that it's a Beatles song. Right? You all know that? You know who the Beatles are? Okay. Um, so it's a Beatles song, and you don't have to spell out the words because everyone knows the song. So the same with Where's the Light That Late I Led. However, that song is now lost. So Cole Porter in Kiss Me Kate, which is his musical version of The Taming of the Shrew, and has an obscene song or two in it. Cole Porter was just as bad and just as full of puns as Shakespeare, and his puns were uh, just as full of double entendres. Um, like in You're the Top, I'm the Bottom, You're the Top. Remember that Cole Porter was gay, and that's a very gay song. So the... Um, what he does is, and he, that, that's got Brush Up Your Shakespeare, which has a lot of double entendres in it, but what, what Cole Porter does now that this song is lost is Cole Porter says, look, a lost song, but I know the first line. Where's the life that late I led? So he writes the song. And if you're Cole Porter, you can do that, and that's great. So that is, but that's a way of saying that there are references in Shakespeare plays to things that people already know. Maybe most famously in King Lear, it's uh, Child Roland to the Dark Tower King, which may or may not be something the audience would have known, but it's certainly lost. No one knows what follows Child Roland to the Dark Tower King. But Robert Browning in the 19th century wrote the great narrative poem that he's imagining that Edgar is quoting from in King Lear. So the, the poem is called Child Roland to the Dark Tower King. Fantastically great poem. And the source of, do people know what? No, but I heard John Burt talk about this at one point. Really? Yeah, he, he talked about Child Roland to the Dark Tower King. Okay, so it's the source of, of someone that I think you've all read or seen movies based on the work of the source of a long series of novels that... Is it Stephen King? Yeah. Do you know what? The Dark Tower. The Dark Tower <laughs> series, and uh, which begins with The Wasteland, and it's The Gunslinger is... Uh, no, you guys don't spend all your time reading Stephen King when you're not in class. You don't watch TV, you don't read Stephen King. My goodness. I watch TV. It's just not the same TV I watch. No, I watch bowling. What do you watch? Oh, golf. Uh, fair. So, so we both watch boring sports, at least. Yes. Um, okay, so the, the idea that the plays have to be purely by Shakespeare is wrong. What Dr. Johnson says in his preface to Shakespeare, which is great, he's talking about, and we'll, we'll now talk about uh, one of the things, that he has to say about Act One, but what Dr. Johnson says in the Preface of Shakespeare is that it's um, an important and humbling thing for an editor of Shakespeare to recognize that people could see how great Shakespeare was even when they were when people hadn't figured out how to correct all sorts of lines. That Shakespeare is so massively great, so massively, he, he's just so um, powerfully brilliant, incandescent. And this is everyone's experience of Shakespeare, and it's an important experience to have, that there are lots of lines whose meaning you couldn't possibly paraphrase, 
And yet, in the onwardness and intensity and rush of the Shakespearean language, it doesn't matter. You still understand what he's saying. And it's not that you understand word for word, it's that you understand in larger units, lines or sentences or speeches. And the words mean whatever you need them to mean in order for the speeches to mean what they obviously mean. Shakespeare, you know, our, our everyday experience of this is if you, if you have the experience of watching TV with your grandparents and they're wanting um, the closed captions on so they can follow what you're watching, and if you're watching closed caption TV, um, which you might not, how many people do it ordinarily? Just every time you watch TV, because you, all right, I think the wire might, might have brought that in. Um, how many people only do it when they're asked to do it? So what happens is when you're, if, if you don't ordinarily do it, but now you do, you become aware of how much you miss when you're not watching closed caption TV, when, when you don't have titles, and it doesn't matter. That is, you can have this just very, very active dialogue going on, and you get what's happening even if there are lines that it turns out you never would have heard. And that's our everyday version of what happens in a Shakespeare play, which is just the language is so overwhelmingly intense and directed that you make things like the be-all and the end-all, which is a phrase that no one really, it's not quite clear what it would mean. You can guess what it would mean, but it's not quite clear what it would mean, except in context, which is the only thing that's important. So why is it the be-all? Well, this is all that we need for there to be. Why is it the end-all? Well, we don't need anything after it. You can explain it if you think about it, but you kind of get it intuitively without necessarily getting it in that sort of detail when Macbeth says, that this might be the be-all and the end-all here, and you just know what that means. So for Johnson, it is, for him, as I say, a humbling idea that Shakespeare is hardly made even slightly better by good editing. That even the original editions of Shakespeare, with all their typos and misprints and so on within them, are still overwhelmingly great. And the same would be true about additions here and there by Middleton, script doctoring by whoever. Even without those things, the Shakespearean part of those plays is overwhelmingly great. And it's not that Middleton isn't a great playwright, he is. But even without figuring out whether Middleton did this or not, the play as a whole, for the plays that we ascribe to Shakespeare, like Macbeth. There are plays that, that do get double ascriptions. The Two Noble Kinsmen, for example, is, or, or Thomas More. Those are Shakespeare and other people, and everyone knew it at the time. But the plays that are ascribed to Shakespeare, even if they were tinkered with, or even if they're bits that come from elsewhere, it really doesn't matter. So, uh, that is, you know, we'll talk about it, but that is an interesting 
issue in how it is in the general question, which is an important general question, which is how we feel about writers, why authors matter to us, what it means for an author to matter to us. And it seems to mean a lot for an author to matter to us, whether for good or for ill. That is, if you want to say that an author, you know, if you want to cancel an author because of their attitudes, you're taking them as someone who matters, not the work, but the author as someone who is mattering to you. If you revere an author, if you're a bardolator, as people call um, people who worship Shakespeare, then it matters to you that it's Shakespeare. And it's an interesting puzzle why the author and not only the work matters, why you can't just say, this is a great play, and however it was put together, that's of no interest. But authors do seem to matter. It has something to do, as, as uh, we were saying before, with the idea of canon. If J.K. Rowling says something about Dumbledore, for example, then it's true, even if it's not in the books, it's true. If a fan fictionist says it, no matter how good it is, it's not true. So, but why? Why can't it just be something that, uh, that exists anonymously, that comes into being anonymously, or comes into being through many hands, the way ballads do? Why do we have to feel that there is an author? And if we do feel that, some of you will know the uh, Roland Barthes essay, The Death of the Author, but Roland Barthes is claiming the death of the author just because the author matters to him. And he wants to see that figure gone, dispensed with, annihilated. So the question is, if authors matter to us, how many people think that authors don't matter to them? So if authors matter to us, the question is, what kind of being is an author? And the simplest but wrongest answer is the author is the human being who wrote the work. Because... That's not what we think about when we think about an author. What we think about an author is someone who's defined by the work that she's written rather than a person who happens to have written this work. Tom? There is a lovely video essay that I implore you to watch called The Artist is Absent. And the, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and the... Um, I, I went to see her. Uh, really? Okay, yes. so the... the, the um, but... Uh, this essay, it's like 30 minutes, and, and this guy goes over basically the main point that he's making is um, to don't confuse the narrator with the author. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is, yeah, no, uh, we're thinking of different we're things. So I'm talking things. about a guy, this is like a YouTube thing. It's a video, I, like I said, I implore you to watch it. But the thing that he's talking about is he's going over like this uh, um, basically a narrative abstract, a narrative abstract video game. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, oh, like, cool. why and what it's about and, like, and, he's, and, and the point and the thing that it has concretely to say. And he goes over, like, this whole, like, authorship and language and stuff like that. The thing that it has concretely to say is don't confuse the narrator with the author. Yeah. Yeah. And so another simple but very wrong answer is that the author is the narrator. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So one 
place that I, one place that Johnson, what, what I was actually thinking of is the artist who's present, which is Marina Abramovich. And do people know about her? So this was, this was an exhibit in New York, um, I guess now about eight years ago or so, where she, she's an amazing conceptual artist. And what she did in this exhibit is you could line up to sit across the table from her. And all she would do is look at you and pay attention to you for however long you sat there. And people, I did line up, but the person sitting in front of me sat there for three hours. And, uh, but she would pay attention to people for eight hours a day, six days a week. And part of it was just her attentiveness was amazing. And she never got up from, from the chair, so she peed before she sat down. And uh, she would just, whoever sat there, she would, and she, she said afterwards that she found it unutterably exhausting because she was actually paying attention to you. And uh, she wouldn't talk to you. She wouldn't say anything. But you could do whatever you wanted sitting across from her, and she would pay attention to what you were doing. And just observing it was amazingly intense. And you can find bits of it on YouTube. Her ex-partner, and I believe ex-lover, but I'm not sure that he was now, actually shut up by surprise. Yeah, Royce. Yeah, I, I've heard the story. And he showed up, and she cried, right? He cried. He cried. Yeah. Okay, um, the, I mean, the she. Female artist Wait, does didn't he cry? cry? Sorry. The female artist didn't cry. She did not cry, um, but she did pay attention, and you can see him crying on YouTube. Uh, yeah, no, it's it was an amazing thing. She did it. It was like a two month long show, so she was doing six the six days a week for two months, and uh, it, it was just just watching it from the sideline, watching it from being in line to try and be. Um, to sit across from her, even that was just amazing. But you can see bits of it on YouTube. So, yeah, artists can be present in that way also. And But what she was was the person paying attention. What he was was the person who'd been involved with her. He was the biographical person. But she was the artist herself, the person paying attention. The, and that might be what the author is like when we think of authors. So... Um, one thing to go back to what we were talking about on Friday and to get into the thematics of Macbeth one of the things that Johnson says and that's clearly not right but it's partly not right because we are so used to it's not being right that it's not right is he's talking he takes the line in Act 1 Scene 3 time Come what may, says Macbeth, time and the hour runs through the roughest day. So whatever, what, what do you think that means? That's Act 1, Scene 3, line 147. Act 1, scene 3, line 147. So this is almost the end. Um, actually, where is it? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's 149 in yeah. the oh. Arden. Mm -hmm. yeah. Act 1, scene 3, is it? Yeah. It's line 149 in the Arden. Yeah, so line uh, 149 in the Arden. Oh, okay. 
So this is, the witches have disappeared after doing their prophecies about Macbeth and Banquo. And then um, in come Ross and Angus to tell Macbeth that the king wants to see him and it's a good thing and that he will... Um, that he's already Thane of Cawder, which proves that the witches were right in the prophecy, at least part of the prophecy they have just made. And then Macbeth um, has a long aside, starting in line 129. Two truths, we'll just get to come with me. Two truths are told as happy prologues to the swelling act of the imperial theme. So notice the dramatic metaphor there. There's, there are prologues, which you often have in plays, setting things up, like the witches saying, um, uh, fair is foul and foul is fair. So truth truths are told as happy prologues, so prologues suggesting that things will go well, to the swelling act, that is the climax where, where the intensity swells, the way music swells, to the swelling act of the imperial theme. So the theme of the play that I want to star in is the theme of kingship, the theme of empire. If you were ever asked the theme of Macbeth, you can say the play, or at least the character says the theme, is the theme of the imperial. I thank you, gentlemen, he says to um, Ross and Angus, and then goes, gets lost in himself again. This supernatural soliciting cannot be ill, cannot be good. So what the word soliciting means there, most people don't ask, but editors ask. So Dr. Johnson says soliciting is rather, in my opinion, incitement than information. So they are soliciting him. Johnson has a good reading of that that we might think this supernatural soliciting would mean that they're, like, that they're giving him information and uh, that the strange word soliciting, which seems to mean to ask for something, in this case is they've approached him with information. Like when you see signs that say no solicitors, it means uh, you can't come here and spin a yarn. But Dr. Johnson says he thinks it's incitement rather than information, that is that they're asking Macbeth to do something. That's a nice reading of the word, but it can't be right. Because Shakespeare might mean it that way, but Macbeth can't mean it that way because he doesn't feel asked to do anything then. It's not that he's being asked to do something. He is um, being told something, and now he's thinking about it. He goes on. It cannot be good, cannot, cannot be ill, cannot be good. If ill, why hath it given me earnest of success commencing in a truth? Um, there's, remember in the speech we looked at Friday, could catch with his surcease success. So that same double meaning of success, which is, which is both a good outcome, but also just the way things will happen in the future, one thing succeeding another. So if it's ill, why if it give me earnest of success commencing in a truth? What does earnest mean there? Anyone know? Like the assurance? 
Assurance, yeah. Do you know what earnest money is? It's something that you still have um, when you do large transactions. So earnest money is what, it's, um, what we would now call a deposit. That is, that earnest money is a kind of money that when you give it to someone, the transaction has actually taken place. Uh, whatever transaction it is, it's begun to take place. So earnest of success is this is um, symbolic. Earnest money is, can often be symbolic. You might do a deposit of a single dollar, but it means that you have made a deposit and the person who has accepted the money can't now sell this to someone else. So here the earnest of success is, look, I got a little thing which proves that what they're offering they're actually giving me. Why have they given me earnest of success commencing in truth? I am Thane of Cawder. If good, why do I yield to that suggestion whose horrid image doth unfix my hair and make my seated heart knock at my ribs against the use of nature? So why, if it's good, why, do I, why am I having an anxiety attack? Present fears are less than horrible imaginings. So... He doesn't know what's going to happen, but he's just imagining horror. My thought, whose murder yet is but fantastical. So is he thinking of murdering Duncan or not? That's a, that's a crucial and somewhat ambiguous sentence. My thought, whose murder yet is but fantastical, shakes so my single state of mind that function is smothered in surmise and nothing is but what is not. So he has ideas. He can't do anything because he's flooded with ideas of the future. Reality seems to be disappearing from him. Nothing is but what is not. Tell you. Can we say that like that's the moment in which he realizes that the only way that he would become king is if Duncan were dead? So it may be that. Yes, I think that it is exactly that that the only way he can be king is if Duncan is dead. And the question is, is that thought itself already so disloyal that he's fantasizing about Duncan's death? Is that thought already so disloyal that it counts as murder? Or is he actually thinking of murdering Duncan? That's a, that's a big question in the play, whether Macbeth and Lady Macbeth have already thought maybe we should murder Duncan um, before or not. There's some evidence that they have but the evidence is ambiguous. and But this is one place that if it's something they've already talked about, this would be him thinking about what they talked about. Banquo says now to Ross and Angus, look how our partner's wrapped. So what does wrapped mean there? Focused. Not quite, because he has this long aside. So focused, but yeah. Sort of like in a trance kind of yeah thing. yeah like, so he's isn't it like rapt attention you're just like paying attention to something like really trance-like yeah so rapt means taken up and caught by something so in this case he's rapt in in his own thoughts so you could say focus in his own thoughts but rapt away from the people he should be interacting with Later, when he sees Banquo in the banquet scene, Lady Macbeth is going to say he does this sometimes. Maybe it's epilepsy. And that idea that Macbeth loses contact with those who are around him. 
as he starts, as he as he gets wrapped in his own thoughts. We now say wrapped up, which I think is a misuse um, because we say it with a W, but I think it's a mishearing of the word wrapped, that he's enraptured by his own thinking. Lady Macbeth says, um, you're seeing Banquo, it's just like when you saw that dagger you told me about. Um, it's BS, but this happens to you. You get lost in the unreal. And this is a place, maybe the first place that we see Macbeth lost in the unreal. Macbeth keeps going. If chance will have me king, why chance may crown me without my stir? If it's true that I'm going to become king, then I don't have to do anything to, to do it. Um, so this is him saying, I'm not going to kill Duncan. Banquo. New honors come upon him like our strange, that is, new um, garments that we're not used to wearing. Cleave not to, like our strange garments, cleave not to their mold, but with the aid of use. So it's like putting on new shoes, and they don't feel good until um, you're used to them. And then Macbeth says, come what may, time and the hour runs through the roughest day. So if chance will have me king, then what chance may crown me without my stir? Which is, we'll see what happens. Come what may, it will come. Time will pass. Time and the hour runs through the roughest day. Come what may, time and the hour runs through the roughest day. You will get to the end of it. Anyone remember Hamlet saying something similar? Memory? Is it right before um, he and Laertes duel? Yeah. He talks with Horatio. I don't remember the exact line, but he's saying that if it's going to happen, it'll happen. Right. If it, um, if it be now, tis not to come. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. So this is the, there's a special providence in the fall of the sparrow speech. Mm -hmm. And it will happen. I don't have to do anything because que sera, sera. What will come in this case. What will be, will be. What will come, will happen. All you have to do, time will, time will make it happen. So come what may, time and the hour runs through the roughest day, one of Shakespeare's grammatical um, mistakes. And um, so Dr. Johnson says, and it's a great line, and thinking about time in Macbeth is like something we should be thinking about. Dr. Johnson um, corrects that. So he writes, and you read this, so I'm just reminding you, in his note on that line. Come what may, time and the hour runs through the roughest day. Johnson says, I suppose every reader is disgusted at the tautology in this passage. Time and the hour, and will, time and the hour? Like, yuck. What does that mean? And will therefore willingly believe that Shakespeare wrote it thus, and here's Dr. Johnson's version, come what may, time, on! The hour runs through the roughest day. So he's calling time to go on. The hour runs through the roughest day, which doesn't help. How, does the, how, how is the hour running through the day any better than time and the hour running through the day? Um, Macbeth is deliberating upon the events which should have befallen, but finding no satisfaction from his own thoughts, he grows impatient of reflection and resolves to wait the close without harassing himself with conjectures. That's true, but... 
time and the hour runs through the roughest day is just infinitely better than time on. That is, get going, time. Class is almost over. Quick, I want it over. Yeah. Um, in this way, though, can't we disprove time as in King Lear in Gloucester's World, World, O World speech, time is dubbed irrelevant to the force of age? Yes. Yeah, and I think a whole that I think there's a lot in Shakespeare. That's a beautiful way of putting it. A lot of Shakespeare is, is a disproof of time, and that's what Hamlet is saying when he says a man's life is no more than to say one. Um, that is that all there is is the present moment and the idea of time. Lady Macbeth. So this is this is stuff to think about um, as you're reading it. And we'll talk more about we'll talk about act, start talking about Act Two on Friday, but. As you're reading it, look for references to time. In particular, one in Act One is Lady Macbeth saying, I feel the future in the instant. That is, right now, the entire future is concentrated and projected into a single point in the instant. So that is, Johnson has put his finger on a really important line, but he, his revision is ridiculous, in my opinion. Okay, uh, so see you guys Friday. If anyone's interested in the Torah.